Okay, so last week we began this um, new study that I'm calling Intersection, uh, the Collision of Identity, Culture, and Control. And what prompted that was uh, a lot of what we see going on in our own country, but also around the world as well. And I was inspired by this uh, intersection that I go through usually once a day, sometimes a couple times a day. And uh, this um, particular intersection is Gilson and Erie Road, where Body of Christ Church is. And it's a three-way stop. And I was thinking a little bit about uh, people in their aggressiveness, if they chose to run those stop signs, you could create quite a collision and a lot of harm. And I thought that was an apt metaphor for what we see taking place around us in our uh, country and on the news. So I kind of use that as a, a launching pad to talk a little bit about identity and culture. And so uh, last week we uh, introduced uh, this particular topic and I just wanna build on that. So we're still kind of using last week's handout, but I did send out a supplemental handout with a few extra things on it. Um, it will not be, it will be in a different sequence in the PowerPoint that you're viewing because uh, I kind of inserted some new slides. So if you see that in your email, that's a supplemental type of thing to help, um, I guess, flesh out some of the things that we're going to introduce tonight. So when we talk a little bit about identity, I think it's interesting that there's different forms of identity. Uh, obviously, we have our family identity, our family name. Um, we might also have other identifications, whether we are involved in certain groups or activities, those type of things. But identity is really firmed up by recognition. And uh, so if you see individuals uh, wearing certain things or they have certain things like, let's say stickers on their car or things in their front yard by yard signs, there's all kinds of these things that prompt an identity that people uh, can associate with. Identity markers, I guess, kind of prompt this idea of, um, of, of unity. So you can see on the uh, slide here that recognition of other groups and whether we're in or outside of that group can be sometimes very obvious or very subtle. So I think we've all seen vehicles driving down uh, the street and they have a big American flag and, uh, and let's say Trump stickers on the bumper, that type of thing. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that this is a very conservative Republican. Um, and some people will identify with that and say, hey, they're part of uh, the group that I want to identify with. Or other people might find that disgusting and uh, say, I don't even want to get close to that. So when you see things like decals, yard signs, often it identifies subcultures that we're either a part of or we want to uh, stay away from. And yet at the same time, some of these things can become very passionate. So 
you know, I wear a lot of uh, sports uh, apparel and because I love sports, whether it's football or basketball or baseball, that type of thing. And that's a subculture all to itself as well. And it identifies sports fans. Well, you have special interest groups, you have political affiliations, all of these things prompt a recognition and that recognition forms an identity that when you look at people that uh, are saying certain things or wearing certain things or something uh, that is specifically identifiable, a lot of times people will then say, those are my people, those are our people. And that's where it starts to become kind of a culture to itself or a subculture or a co-culture. And uh, those cultural identities often will determine how we treat other people on those outside of the circle. So things like um, racism, uh, white nationalism, uh, different things like that has an effect. So if people, uh, right now, the, there's a lot that's going on uh, talking about gun control, and you have different groups, those who, those who want things put into place to uh, prevent um, young people or actually anyone uh, having assault weapons, not have it easily by walking up to the counter in, in a gun store and being able to purchase it without background checks, and et cetera, et cetera. So these people now that that want to preserve this right that they have, have pitted themselves against another co-culture, the anti-gun um, uh, emphasis to try to put laws into place that make our overall um, life safer. So identity and culture are around us all the time. And here's the deal. Um, it's really the same dynamic that is going on, whether you're on the right side or the left side of it. And I've given this as an illustration. Am I covering that up at all? Can you see the whole thing? All right. So um, when you see identity and how it then uh, affixes to politics, one of the things that you'll find is that you kind of fall on one side or the other. So like on the left side, those who are on the left side of the political spectrum, um, they will criticize the other side by saying they're too focused on white privilege and nationalism, and it can have cause effect of economic uh, injustices. Um, and so they're trying to emphasize economic justice, equality among different races, genders, and so forth. So... Um, on the left side, many times um, they are critical of, of the right side because it takes away from this, uh, this unique experiment called the American experience where people of all kinds of different uh, identities and subcultures started the country and came over through Ellis Island, so on and so forth. And, and to try to um, homogenize people into just one American, quote unquote, people, um, the left will say, you're taking away from a lot of the things that 
um, you know, what made us who we are. And, and the criticism was that the right ignores legitimate cultural and ethnic subcultures and often will use religion to try to substantiate that. On the other side, the right side politically uh, looks at the left side and they feel that uh, those that are to the left politically are singling out specific groups for unique privileges and rights that not everyone has. So they oppose things like critical race theory, Black History Month, Pride Month, those type of things. And the reason that they are opposed is um, they feel that it takes away from a national unity where we're all Americans. Let's set aside all of these other distinctions, we're all Americans. And uh, so this how, is how identity and culture sometimes plays out around us all the time. And it's quite complex. Uh, this is very simplistic, uh, what I put up on the screen. But um, when we begin to see it and recognize it, I think one of the things that we see is how different groups try to control certain things to keep their own identity and their own culture, whatever it is, in place, regardless of whether it has effect on other people. So that's kind of a way to kind of launch into this tonight. But um, everyone has an identity, or as I put here, entities, identities are like elbows. Everybody has at least one, but usually you have more than one. So I'm white, um, I'm middle class, um, I'm a senior citizen now. There's all kinds of subcultures uh, that are part of this, uh, but those identities make up our social world. And it usually can produce a lot of subsets. And so, you know, seniors get an advantage uh, to certain things, but um, you know, then they're behind the eight ball and other things. So senior citizens might have a discount at a restaurant, but at the same time can't afford their medications. So, I mean, there's a lot that goes into the different identities, but identity is a recognition, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a recognition of similarities and differences among people and to identify something is to recognize who we are, who other people are. And these divisions a lot of times is a power struggle. And these power struggles attempt to organize social life in such a way uh, that it's to our benefit or advantage. So when we see people and we begin to associate uh, information that we know about certain subsets or subcultures, um, we begin to uh, automatically place them into certain categories. So that's what a lot of people do with Blacks. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating what happens with people who are um, African-American. Other people who are part of a different subculture will see African-Americans and they'll tense up thinking that uh, you can't trust an African-American. So they'll lock their car door quickly or they'll uh, say, keep an eye because they're all thieves or 
are you following what I'm saying? You begin to lump groups into a bigger category. And um, eventually, a lot of times what happens in these subcultures is we have some way of determining who belongs and who doesn't belong, who's in and who's out, okay? So those are just some things that I wanted to get started. Now I'm gonna give you some illustrations here in a second, but do you have any thoughts or questions or comments on some of these introductory slides for tonight? So none of us escapes identity. It's always operative. It's always the water that we're swimming in. Um, and the temptation is we are always determining who's in and who's out. Now, identity sorts out our social world. And what happens a lot of times is that then becomes a means of determining who can, who can have power within that group. So here's an illustration. So politics always involves identity. Are you Republican? Are you Democrat? Are you the Green Party? Are you progressive? Now within the United States, we don't have as many sub cultures as other nations. So when you think about other nations, the amount of political parties that they have alone is mind boggling. Sometimes there's seven or eight or nine different political parties. That can be good and bad. You have options, but yet at the same time, how does any one of those groups actually create a unity when you have so many different directions? And yet our own country being basically Republican and Democrat doesn't give us enough options because we might find ourselves aligning ourselves, our identity is with certain things in the Republican party and at the same time, identifying with certain things in the Democratic party. And you kind of go, isn't there a party that can take these best things of both worlds and bring them together? And that never gains any traction, does it? It, it? it just, you know, the cards are stacked against that to allow that to happen in our own country. So once you identify, so let's say you go to register to vote. Okay, are you gonna put an R or a D beside your name or an I for independent? Once you begin to do that, you begin to align yourself with who that particular subculture begins to say is worthy of leadership within that group. So it determines who, who should be the leader. Sometimes it has implications of who should be taxed and by how much they should be taxed, who's allowed to make laws and enforce them, uh, that type of thing. And that's what we see going on all the time on Capitol Hill, where you see uh, senators and the House of Representatives, and, and they're tugging back and forth to try to determine who is able to uh, push the uh, ball down the field a little bit uh, in particular areas. And right now it's concerning gun control. And so uh, this whole thing is not really making any headway. It seems as though it's the same as it was 
in the years prior, even though what we have seen over the last month is a succession of uh, shootings that have cost lives at, with the use of assault rifles. And you would think by now, especially with Uvalde, uh, the kids that were killed in that shooting, you would think, well, now's the time that we should uh, socially organize ourselves better uh, to prevent this from happening. But it seems as though we can't make any headway on it. And that's because of the different subcultures and that's the different identities that are attached to that. So I hope that makes some sense. So I put uh, some examples of collective identities uh, down at the bottom of this slide. So think about uh, going into a bar, it's Sunday afternoon at one o'clock and it's, it's a sports bar. And as you walk into this sports bar, you wanna watch a game, you see over in the right-hand corner, they have the Browns game on. And so I would go to that corner, but if there was other games on, let's say Miami Dolphins or uh, some other team, they would be pulled because of their identity as a fan toward that particular TV. So it doesn't take long for us to kind of sort through and figure out where we belong. And when you walk in, you notice these things and you say, okay, over here is a Browns backer corner. That's where I want to watch the Browns game. And so you go there and you're wearing a jersey and you're high-fiving, are we going to win today? You begin to speak a certain language that everyone within that group understands. What about Chubb? Well, what does that mean? Oh, he's a running back for the, for the Browns. Is he going to have a 100-yard game this, uh, uh, a 100-yard game this uh, time? You know, uh, those who know the game understand the lingo, all right? And you don't need to explain it. Well, that happens in other areas of life as well. Uh, and usually there are identity markers. I already talked about jerseys, but think about hats, bumper stickers, slogans, yard signs, all of these type of things. All of these type of things communicate something. So this past weekend, uh, Esty and I had a pride flag that we had secured a couple of years ago when we went down to the pride parade. And we used it here a couple of times at church, but we actually put a, uh, a flag holder. Uh, and since this is pride month, we, we put it, uh, that flag in the, now people drive down the street and they see that some of them will know right away what that means. And other people will go, Oh, that person likes color. It really kind of spruces up the house. They might not know what that symbolizes. So we see this around us all the time. And then we attach language to it. So in the case of Pride Month, um, we will use language like open, affirming, uh, those type of things that will communicate to people that know the language in that subgroup, right? But to other people, like, what do you mean open? What are you talking about? Affirming what? It, so it kind of depends on what group we find ourselves in. And yes, Christians are a part of a subgroup. Uh, we use Christian ease all the time that people who are not religious or not Christian do not understand. Born again, saved, blessed, 
different words that are used all the time that communicates to people in that subgroup, but doesn't communicate anything to people who are ignorant of that language. So culturally speaking, when you hear words like woke, CRT, MAGA, BLM, if you watch the news, you'll know what those are. Critical race theory, uh, make America great again, Black Lives Matter. But if you don't watch and you kind of just go to work and come home and eat dinner and watch the ball game, but don't watch any news and you see these abbreviations, you might go, what is that? So you almost have to, to be a part of a subculture that is a news watcher <laughs> to be able to pick up the language and identify what it is. Does that make sense? A lot of this stuff? Okay. So having said that, here's what I want you to do. First, let me see if you have some thoughts. Do you have any questions, comments at all? Okay, woke is a cultural expression that um, uh, says it's basically related to injustices that we have become aware of and that we want to rectify. So whether it's racism or those type of things, to be woke is you, you now see and you can't unsee that. And you try to push a particular agenda to try to reverse those things. Okay. Yes, I have seen that. Did you? Um, so Mark just talked about the, the yard signs. I, I haven't seen as many of them now, but okay. So there's been yard signs and sometimes there's flags. Uh, perhaps you've seen them. Let's go, Brandon. Have you seen those anywhere? Okay. If you've seen the flag or a yard sign that says, let's go, Brandon, it's, it's code. And it, what it's code for is F.U. Biden. That's what it's code for. So it's, you know, people, oh, yeah, let's go, Brandon. That must be somebody's son that plays on the basketball team, right? Let's go, Brandon. No, it, it's a political statement that's basically um, cursing at Biden. So it, it, it's interesting, these different subcultures have their own language, where I bet a lot of people would see that flag, let's go Brandon, and they have no idea what it stands for. You had, Mark said he had to look it up, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you could hear Esty or not. She said, when you're coming into a new country like she did, um, there's all these subcultures and there's no way of being able to understand uh, what they mean or how you navigate them because you have your own subcultures in your own country that you have left to come to the United States. So even to, to, even to this day at times, Esty will ask me, I don't know what that means. And I'll say, oh, that's what this represents. So that's, and 
you know, we've been married almost 40 years. So it, you know, we, we associate with these things all the time and we know what they mean, but somebody from the outside can't figure it out unless somebody explains it. So Mark just gave us the illustration of let's go Brandon. And people uh, might not know what that means until somebody that's on the inside of understanding says to, well, that means F you Biden, you know, and um, how it got it. I'd have to look it up. I don't even remember how it originated, but that's what it, it caught on as code. So yeah, there's an explanation. We'd have to look it up. I don't remember what how that began, but anyways. So identity is always operative all the time. And we're always developing coded language and subcultures. And, you know, that is at play all the time, not only on a legislative level, making laws and that type of thing, but on a personal level too. So when we're interacting with people and we pick up clues that this individual fits a particular group that I'm not comfortable with, then, you know, there's, you know, keeping a distance and that type of thing. I, I, I feel that a lot of times we do this without getting to know another person. We, we put up resistance a lot of times simply because we've identified something as part of a subculture that we aren't comfortable with or maybe fearful of, or it could be a, a variety of things. So identity, that's just a little bit of groundwork. Let's illustrate it. So if you have, no, let, let, yeah, let's go, go let's, let's go. Larry would have had a better ring to it. Yeah, it sure would have. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Oh, I no. would have to change the meaning of that. <laughs> yeah, no, we, can, we can think of something. Let's just think of something nice. You know. Yeah, I agree. Uh, just feel so bad for the brand. <laughs> Uh, take your Bible and turn open to Genesis 32. Larry, one quick comment. Yeah, go ahead. I, I do think one, one of the things that, that factors into this somewhat generally, I think, is um, people, people do not want change. So a lot of folks, you know, they're nostalgic for times that they thought were better, even yeah. though it may have been better for them, but it was worse for a lot of other people. Right. And I think that that's that whole concept of, of nostalgia and not wanting change and wanting it to be like it used to be, mm -hmm. but at, least, at least for those individuals who felt like maybe they were better off, maybe they were in better, more control, and maybe they feel that they're losing that control in, in whatever area it may be. I, I do think that that plays a lot into this whole, this whole issue. You know, it, it does. You're spot on. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. It just, you know, people that, that reminisce actually think that life was better before. Um, and, you know, we use terms like the good old days, right? Um, but in reality, when they were going through it, their life was just as tough then as it is now. It's just that memory a lot of times plays tricks on us. And we, we identify with the good things and we want to go back to that. And we fail to understand that 
life continues to move forward and you can't turn back the hands of time. It's, it, and so we'd be far better to say, how can we make our world better that we live in rather than trying to recapture a world that we lost? But I agree with you 100%, bud, that's for sure. So yeah, any, any more comments, uh, bud, Shelly, no, uh, Helen, no, okay. So I wanna il illustrate, this is quite fascinating to me. So sometimes individual identity becomes collective identity. And I think that's illustrated in the story of Jacob. If you have your Bible, turn open to Genesis chapter 32. Now the context of this is uh, Jacob, as you remember, stole Esau's birthright. He basically went on the run. Um, he gets married. He starts to have a family. Um, he, his father-in-law Laban tricks him. And so he has to wait a total of 14 years uh, to, um, to get the woman that he really wanted. So time has rolled along. And now Jacob hears that um, his brother Esau is coming after him. And what we find is Jacob is trying to get ready for what he thinks is going to be a, um, a violent interaction. I, I take a look at verse three here. It says, Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now, and I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He's trying to patch over the fact that he deceived Esau, stole his birthright, and he's going to try to send presents to appease Esau. Uh, verse six says, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came, uh, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Now, that's <laughs> when, you, when you hear he's bringing 400 <laughs> men with him, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? He's coming to kill us. He's coming to kill us. So then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, verse 7, and he divided the people that were with him, the flocks, etc., and sent them in different directions. And he turns to God in verse nine, and he begins to pray, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Jacob, uh, Isaac rather, um, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I'm afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. And so he pleads, uh, pleads with God uh, to intervene in the situation. And so he's going to spend the night there. And um, he sends some presents to his brother Esau. And what we find is on that night, and I want you to 
jump down to verse 22. On that night, he has this God encounter. Um, verse 22 says, the same night he got up, took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until break, uh, daybreak. Now, this is a very mysterious passage. Who is this man and why is he wrestling with him? And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Now, here's an identity. What's your name? Jacob's name means deceiver, one that is a trickster. And here, this man who is some type of incarnational presence of God, because Jacob says, I've wrestled with God and I have prevailed. But it's interesting that he, uh, this man forces Jacob to embrace his identity as a conniver, as a deceiver, as a trickster. But then he says, I'm going to change your identity. You're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and you have prevailed. So Jacob is changing his identity, not just to appease for his indiscretions against Esau, but this new identity becomes the name of a new culture, and that is the, the uh, nation that is going to emerge from uh, Jacob's lineage. And this collective group of people are also going to be called Israel, those who wrestle with God and prevail. So you see an individual identity can become a collective identity. And that's what's happening here. It will take a while because Jacob will have sons. Joseph is his favorite. They'll go to Egypt. Uh, they'll be enslaved for 400 years. They'll be delivered. Uh, they'll move toward a promised land. This isn't something that happens overnight but it is something that is developing that begins at this point in time through this new identity. Interestingly enough, when I was watching the news this morning, I always turn on um, uh, uh, Joe and Mika on the um, Morning Joe, and um, they were talking about, um, they had a guest on, they were talking about a new book that uh, was describing the beginning of the civil rights era actually began, began with the arrest of Dr. Martin Luther King. And so they built this case that it really didn't take off. It didn't become kind of a communal identity until he was arrested. And, um, and then it caught, it caught momentum. And really then began to grow. Uh, and, and of course, this is after the Rosa Parks incident where she wouldn't um, uh, give up her seat on the bus. But the guest was saying, while that was important, 
that really didn't begin the communal identity and the subsequent push for civil rights until this young man that was a preacher, Dr. Martin Luther King was arrested. So it, I thought that was a fascinating thing because of what we were talking about tonight as an illustration that Jacob is an individual, his identity is being changed, but it's not just him. It's also the people that will follow him that will be given the same uh, title, Israel. That makes sense to everybody? So this is at play all the time. Who am I as an individual? What family am I from? However, what city am I from? Um, what, what economic level am I from? Um, what education level am I from? <clears throat> All of these things make us who we are. And it also conditions us to see other people who have similarities to be our people. Does that make sense? And when we identify in that way, it's usually through some type of event. Uh, it's usually through some type of moment like Jacob here that might change the direction to embrace another identity. So my parents never went to college, but I did. And that changed my identity a little bit because I didn't just go into the workforce and become a meter reader for the East Ohio Gas Company like my dad. That makes sense to everybody. Different events and different moments add to or sometimes changes the direction of our identity. Thoughts there? It really fits with the show we're watching. <laughs> we're binging on right now. Which is what? what is it? It's called <laughs> Counterpart, but there, there should be a warning on its label. It gets a little... <laughs> Racy in parts. Yeah, counterpart on Netflix or what? Uh, I think it. You can get it on. Um, I know it's. it's uh, Prime, right? Right. Okay. It's originally with the other one called What's the Beyond. So if you have Prime, uh, check it out. Uh, this this might be something that has uh, some parallels to what we're talking about. Very good. So he, he, uh, <laughs> Jacob has a change of identity. Now, this happens all the time. This is a supplemental slide that's on that supplemental handout. It wasn't on last week's uh, handout. There's a number of times, I'm going to show you in a second, in the Bible where the change of identity is signaled by a change of name. Now, this is here's one with Jacob to eat uh, Israel. But that is a practice, if we'll pay attention, that happened in history and it happens uh, within our own day and age as well. So here's two examples. So royalty from Assyria um, to Egypt to China, a lot of times um, royalty will take on a different public name when they take power. And um, that is also true in the Roman Catholic Church when a new pope comes into power. Uh, he will not keep his earthly name. He will change his name to a previous pope 
that he wants to imitate. And uh, so that, you know, you have Pope Pius or Pope Dene uh, Benedict III or the 5th or the 14th or, but think about uh, how many, um, how many king, kings also take the names uh, of other kings. And so it might be, um, you know, King Henry VIII or whatever, you know, type, that type of thing. So this is, is something that often sets the direction for the position that an individual has. Now, many of the name changes in the Bible, some of them are initiated by God, but some of them are initiated by the circumstances that the individual finds themselves in. Now, in the case of Jacob here, it's both. It's initiated by God, but why is he in the position to wrestle with this guy? Because of the circumstances of wanting uh, to protect his family from what he thought was Esau uh, coming to kill him. Now, when if you were to continue to read in Genesis, and we won't uh, tonight, but Jacob and Esau will meet. Uh, Esau will not kill Jacob. <laughs> uh, there's a reunion of sorts. And um, so Jacob was fearful for something that really wasn't the motivation of Esau at all. But he carried with him an identity all these years before this reunion with uh, Esau. When you are born, you come into a world already connected to somebody. It's called your family. And your soul is connected for your entire life to that family. Sometimes uh, these ties can be broken. You know, you've heard of sons and daughters not speaking to moms and dads for years and that type of thing but you never completely are severed from the identity that you are born into. And I think here in the case of Jacob, he never ever moved beyond the fact that when he was a youngster, he was a mama's favorite while Esau was daddy's favorite. And it was a part of this that he carried with him as his identity. And he basically at the prompting of his mother, um, it, uh, became a deceiver. So, you know, he, he was an individual by the prompting of his mom to, to, um, hide himself, uh, and his identity from his dad. So here's some name changes just as examples. So Abraham to Abraham, uh, Abram to Abraham in Genesis 17, five, sometimes it has meaning behind it high father, that's the meaning of Abram, to the father of many. You add the word A-M at the end of the, his name there, it becomes plural, uh, the father of many. Same thing with Sarai to Sarah. Sarai meaning princess, Sarah meaning the mother of nations. Now, these are positive, but then you look at Naomi changes her name in Ruth 120 to Mara. Her name, Naomi, means beautiful, but the name Mara means bitter because of the life circumstances uh, that she was going through. 
I don't know the meaning of this name, but Joseph's name in Genesis 41-45 is changed uh, to an Egyptian identification, uh, Zapanath uh, Panana. Um, I don't know if there's a meaning to that. I didn't look that up. But Daniel's name is changed to Belshazzar in Daniel 1-7. Uh, Esther's name is changed from Hebrew uh, Hadassah to Esther and Esther to Hadassah rather uh, to uh, uh, Esther and Esther to seven and then ones that I think we're more familiar with Simon's name is changed to Peter uh, which means God Simon means God has heard Peter means a rock yeah that's in John 1 and Saul to Paul which is interesting that's not a change of meaning. It's just a change of culture. So Saul is a Hebrew name. It's changed to Paul, which is a Greek name in Acts 13.9. So those are just some examples of identities and changes of identities uh, that we see in the Bible. Can you think of any others? Anybody? Can you think of some identification changes through name changes? I'm sure there's more. I just, these are the ones that. You're uh, just looking at ones in the Bible? Oh, well, you can give other illustrations too. Well, how about Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay? Yeah. 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 Mual Cinder to Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Same thing, right? Yeah, and when you get married, uh, you know, tradition. Uh, has been for centuries the woman taking the last name of the of the man in the marriage. Nowadays, though, that's not as prominent. It's it's changing. So women are hyphenating a lot of times their last name. So you know, uh, or not changing it at all, right? So Esty would continue to be Esty Majar, or if she wanted to have a hyphenated name, Esty Majar Poza. That, you know, so it's interesting how some of these things uh, play out. Other other examples that you have? Okay. Um, so we're going to run out of time with the same lesson, but we'll pick up <laughs> next week. Let's begin, though. By moving from identity to culture. Now, this is a tough one. How do you define culture? What is a culture? Um, as you can see on the screen, it's really multidimensional. And sometimes it's abstract too. But here's a definition I came across. Culture is the shared personal and learned life experiences of a group of individuals who have a common set of values, norms, and traditions. So there's a lot in that sentence. Uh, culture is a shared personal and learned life experiences. So let's, let's think just for a moment about uh, the Jewish people. They have a culture, Judaism. It's not just a religion, it's an entire culture. And um, whether a person believes in God, doesn't believe in God, can still be Jewish uh, because not just of their heritage, but they like the traditions, okay? They like the rituals. They like the values. 
and so it's not just a religious identity, it's an entire cultural identity. Now, when you take that and then you place on top of that a shared experience like the Holocaust, um, you'll find that this group then is, uh, you know, trying to continue to make aware the anti-Semitism that continues in our world because it almost led to the extinction, if that could have happened, and at least the desire of Hitler was to make it happen, of getting rid of the Jewish people. So it's a culture, it's a co-culture, and it's a subculture all at the same time. And it's based on these shared life experiences. And as a result of that, there's this common set of values, norms, and traditions to keep the story alive. So think of the Passover. Observing the Passover every year is keeping the story of the Exodus alive. Uh, Hanukkah is keeping the story of the resistance of a group of Jewish people uh, alive, and so on and so forth. And we have those as well. So when we think about some of our holidays. Um, okay, the next one is the 4th of July. Okay, so we then associate the beginning of our nation, which is still very young in perspective compared to other uh, nations in the world. Uh, we celebrate that with fireworks. That's a tradition. It's kind of a, it's a, um, it's a ceremony. I don't want to call it a ceremony, but in many ways it is. It's kind of reinforcing the fact that this is a nation that is still in its infancy and still trying to figure itself out and still using a new, uh, a new way of uh, organizing itself politically within a different system uh, of capitalism versus other um, things. So culture has a lot of unique elements to it in, in co-cultures or subcultures, but there's common components as well. And I've listed these for you, age, gender, sex, sexual identity, geographic region, family background, and ability. So let's think through that. And that's where we'll, we'll finish off for tonight and then we'll pick back up on culture next week. So the complexity of culture can be found in um, common components. And uh, age is one of those, and that is infancy, toddler, childhood, adolescence, you know, uh, middle age, senior citizen. It's all the same category, age, but it has so many different elements to it as we move through those different age brackets. And so the complexity of culture is yeah, infants have a whole different set of needs than um, young adults. Uh, senior citizens has a whole different set of needs than uh, those who are in their uh, middle age years or whatever. Gender, um, what we're finding is the culture is becoming more complex and this causes fear in the hearts of uh, a lot of people in our country. Everything up until the last uh, 25 years 
has been either male or female, kind of binary, male or female. And now that we're seeing advances in the culture of the queer community or the non-binary community, that, is, that has upset a lot of people because they like that old, and this goes back to what Bud said, they like the old world where male and female, it's either one or the other, rather than, oh, this is becoming too complex. And as a result of that, what are we gonna do with sports and bathrooms and you know all of these type of things when people identify as something else? Uh, um, and sex is a part of that as well. Male, female, transgender, sexual identity is a part of that. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, and so forth. So all of these things are at play all the time in culture. Have you, in your travels, isn't it interesting that you can, you can know the subculture of people just by listening to how they talk? Okay, so if you hear somebody say, I gotta go park the car. Okay, they're from New England somewhere. You know, it might be Boston or it might be someplace else, but they're gonna park the car. Um, I've had people at times, and I don't know what the Midwest accent is, but we have one. Uh, I've had people in other parts of the country say, you're from the Midwest, aren't you? I go, yeah. I am. I don't know what that accent is because when you're in the subculture, when you're in the subculture, you don't recognize, right? You don't. So when you hear people say y'all, y'all or draw out certain things, you go, oh, they're from the South, right? So geographic uh, regions can be identified. Um, and it's interesting. We have our own language. Uh, that might be Midwest language, or it might be even more localized. So if I said to you, um, do you set your garbage out on the devil strip? Would you know what I'm talking about? That's an Akron thing. The devil strip is your tree lawn. Yeah. Yeah. The devil strip is the tree lawn. So that's an Akron phrase. Okay, I'm from Akron. I, when I hear somebody say that, I automatically know they're referring to the tree lawn. So, um, but, you know, we all have those depending upon. So, um, Brenda, Helen, you're out, you come into the city from a more rural area. Uh, are there elements of, of speech or that type of thing that you recognize immediately when you see other people that they probably are coming from maybe a more um, rural or farm community? Do you, is there certain things that stand out? I'm just kind of curious. What's that? From Pierpont, yeah. Or Ashtabula. The only thing that we, we both thought of at the same time is we eat breakfast, dinner, and supper. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as lunch. Okay. Okay, and I, and I always refer to it as lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But you, what'd you say it was? It was breakfast? It's breakfast, dinner, and supper. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. In a farming community, the dinner was your biggest meal. Uh -huh. and, and supper is a, is, a, is a lighter meal in the evening. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, no such thing as lunch until okay. you started going to school and you had lunch. And you had a lunch break or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. type. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Other examples of that? Anything like that? Yeah. 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 So what Beth was saying, I know you, yeah. this this laptop doesn't pick up uh, very well. Uh, other people's comments. She was saying when she went to camp as an Ohio resident uh, uh, to Pennsylvania, they would always pick up on the fact that you're from Ohio and you have an Ohio accent, which is interesting yeah. because yeah, Beth says I didn't. I didn't think I had an accent. You're the one that has an accent, right? The Pennsylvania accent. Yeah, it's a Cleveland accent versus Southern Ohio. Now, is there a way of distinguishing that, Shelley? How would you How would you distinguish that? It's twang. Welcome to Southern Ohio. Okay, twang. No, I think no, Southern Ohio. They sound like they're from West Virginia or Kentucky. And well, which makes sense. They're, they're in closer proximity to, you know, Kentucky and uh, West Virginia. Other places. Yeah, I've always said the Mason-Dixon line should have come right above Columbus. Yeah. Okay. So, sense. So when you when you're moving back to Columbus here and your house is done, do you think people are going to say, um, "Oh, you're from Northeast Ohio"? Do you think? Yeah, you probably. No, probably not. Just Columbus has become too too cosmopolitan. Okay. In the old days, it was more like that. I think there's so many people from all over the world, country in Columbus now. It's changed. It's changed Columbus quite a bit. No, I've had my kids have had people tell them, "Well, no." I I have a Cleveland accent apparently now. I don't have the. My southern, cousin, when we, when we, were, when we moved back to Cleveland, my, my cousins all have Cleveland accents. I think very strong. Very strong. You know, they're, I'm not sure if they're twangy or how, exactly how to describe it. They're Another Cleveland thing I think is got, calling calling women and men guys. That's only you know? no everybody does. No, I think it's more of a. I don't think the rest of the country does that. Where, you know. If, you refer you, you refer to a group of men and women or boys and girls as guys. You guys. You, know, you guys. Hey, you guys. So, yeah. Hmm. That's another little more regional thing. Yeah. One thing I always well, I I figured out after I got to college and and whatnot was that having grown up in Shaker, I was very much culturally Jewish. Uh huh. Rather than, sense. you know, whatever the rest of Cleveland is. <laughs> now that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because it had a high, high, Very uh, high, high Jewish population, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. What what's that? Yeah. So what Mark uh, was just saying is. 
So people that didn't live in that community associates you were rich and well off if you lived in Shaker Heights and where else? Cleveland, Cleveland Heights. Heights. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So just a couple more things here. Uh, it's interesting culturally that um, the family background that we come from used to be kind of more mom and dad, dad would work, mom stayed home, took care of the house, that type of thing. Now, a lot of that is changing family background, uh, people coming from single family, uh, single parent homes, um, or in the case of um, people that did not get married, cohabiting couples that, that have children together, uh, two moms, two dads, different, different things like that, that can, um, you know, help define uh, a culture for a person as they are growing up. And of course, ability has a lot to do with it too, in terms of if you came from a family that was, um, that were deaf, uh, even though you aren't deaf, you probably, you knew sign language, because that's how you communicated with uh, your family. So all of these things make up for a very complex um, uh, uh, way of, of interacting with people and, and understanding who they are and, and where they're coming from. But, you know, I, I began by saying, you know, we're, we're drawn to and identify with our people. So let's just use this last thing as an example. So I just mentioned if a person is deaf and they were to walk into a big room and they saw somebody in the room doing sign language, they would be drawn to it right away, okay? Because this, these are my people, that type of thing. So that's where I'm gonna leave it for tonight. And we'll come back and begin next week talking a little bit about how culture is passed from uh, one generation to the next. And uh, we'll continue from there and, and add some more stuff um, as we go along. So any closing thoughts or comments that you have for this evening? You know, one other just quick thought is, you know, and again, in the past, particularly before the media, it was what it is today in terms of the, the, you know, the fact that there's so much information is communicated so easily and so quickly. Cultures were more stable. And I, I yeah. think today, um, everything changes so fast. And I think the media, the internet, whatever else, just there's so much information, so much, um, I think. And, and of course, it's good in some respects, it's bad in other respects, because in many cases, it's slanted heavily or distorted. So you really, but I do think the whole issue of the availability of, of, of literally global information at any level, as much, as much as you want at any time, you know, whether it's accurate or not, is somehow that's also affecting people's perception of culture, of how they fit, you know, and, and, and also getting, getting back to the issue of change and people being concerned that my culture is, is going to be forced to change because of all these things that I can now see happening. But in, that, that 50, even 50 years ago, even 25, 30 years ago before the internet and all that, people were less, you know, less aware of what was going on. And so they were less concerned about some of these things. Whereas today, I think that's, that's just changing. Um, and, it, and it seems like we don't get any resolution to a lot of that stuff before they move on to the next crisis. 
So a lot of times with that influence, you know, we were hearing about the war in Ukraine on a daily basis. Now that these shootings have happened, they're not talking about it at all, practically. You know, they've moved on. Well, that that whole situation has not been resolved <laughs> as bad as it was a couple months ago. But we don't know that unless we seek it out or we're trying to, you know, educate ourselves on it. But you're exactly right. Boy, it, it's a different world, isn't it? Um, when we think about the amount of information we need to process and then how to figure out how we fit into that. So yeah. thoughts, any other comments before we close up? Well, I think we had a good discussion tonight and it lays some groundwork for uh, moving ahead and we'll pick up uh, there next week. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. I hope you have a great night. Okay. Have a good night. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.